Amen. In Proverbs, the wise do certain things and they don't do certain things. In the, in the book of Proverbs, the wise speak certain ways and the wise don't speak certain ways. They're characterized, characterized by wisdom in their speech and not just actions. In fact, what we find in Proverbs as well as James is what our, our doing includes our speaking. Our, our deeds are, are partly manifested by our words that come out of our lips. Speech is an action that we perform. Because the organ of our body, our lips and our tongue are moving and we're communicating and we are doing that. And it's coming from us and it's going to others and most of the time going to others. And if you want to grow wise, you have to pay attention to what comes out of your lips. And we should consider that we might need to enlist the help of others along the way. Sometimes we might assume our lips are shaped by wisdom and already demonstrate quite a wise and discerning way of living. When uh, that might not be the case. The wise are not just those who say, well, I want to say what is true. Wisdom is not less than that. However, if you look throughout Proverbs, it is more than that. Let me put it this way. The wise are those who know what to say, when to say it, where to say it, how to say it, and whom to say it to. Which shows that living wisely in God's world is just more complicated than saying, well, I'm just going to state what is true. There is a discretion and wisdom and nuance and sensitivity as speaking the truth in love, as Paul would tell us in the letter of Ephesians. The wise are those who know what to say, when to say it, how to say it, those kinds of things. The, the qualifications that in a life demonstrate I don't want to have a reckless tongue. A tongue that is thoughtless and just sort of shooting things out everywhere. Spraying truth and opinion far and wide. Our desire should be as believers that our tongues be wise. I don't imagine there's anyone in this room who would say, that's not really what I want for myself. <laughs> Instead, I think we would all agree. Like we, We're confessing to know Christ. We want to grow in wisdom. And that means we want our tongues to be wise and not stupid. Not foolish. The book of Proverbs uses this language to apply to the recklessness of the fool. And the fool's speech demonstrates the fool's status as a fool. So we come to this list of Proverbs, and I know it's a longer list than we looked at in our first two times together. The theme that is um, going through each of these Proverbs tonight like a thread, it's, it's a theme of dealing with the speech. The speech of the righteous, the speech of the unrighteous, the speech of the wise, the speech of the fool. And, and what we need to recognize as a big theme in this speech section is that your words affect others, but your words affect you. And we can, also, we can often give cautions about speech. You know, you need to watch what you say because, you know, this particular individual in this particular setting. And we can think about nuances and context to encourage good and wise speech because of how others are affected. We want to affirm that. And to say also, your speech affects you as the speaker. You are not unaffected by what you say. Yes, our words affect other people. But it's not neutral in, in the way that we relate to our words. <clears throat> Instead, your words affect you, not only the recipients of your words. So we should, we should recognize a double interest here. 
Yes, we should care about what we say out of love for neighbor, but also because we should care about our own souls. So our tongues matter because we want to love neighbor. We want to care for our own souls. In verses 13 and 14, let's look together at what we might call the effective words on the speaker. In verse 13, the opening description is of an evil man. And this evil man is ensnared, which is this image of a fowler, a trap that has been set. And the fowler is trying to get prey. Evil people do not intend to shipwreck their own lives. That's not what they think they're doing. Foolish speakers don't think they're setting traps for their own feet. They don't think they're doing that. So what Proverbs is doing is just penetrating through all the nonsense and saying, listen, speakers, if you are thoughtless about your tongue, reckless with the words that come out of your heart, you're going to get in your own way. You will be an obstacle in your own life. Reckless speech is bad for the speaker. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. Now, we might have expected that to say an evil man ensnares others by his transgression. His lips are a trap. Now, that certainly is the case. Proverbs 1, many different Psalms, they recognize the reality that our deceitful words, uh, malicious accusations, lies, and false testimonies, all kinds of wicked speech can ensnare others. Proverbs is so helpful, though, to let it land home and personally so. The evil man is ensnaring himself by the transgression of his lips. So we are to understand this proverb to say that the wicked person, like in Proverbs 18:7, his mouth is his ruin, Solomon says. His mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. Proverbs 18:7. I think it's making the same point as our verse tonight. This is a contrast with the righteous. The righteous escapes from trouble. This is the picture of a trap again. The evil man is ensnared by the trap. His own words bring ruin upon himself. That's not so for the righteous. Now, the righteous might face, of course, various trials in life. But the righteous's trials are not necessarily because of his own wrongdoing and foolishness or her own foolishness and lack of discernment. Rather, the righteous is thoughtful and careful in their words. The words of the righteous can lead them around what would entrap the wicked. We have all heard stories where someone has offended others with gossip or slander or saying the right thing at the wrong time or the wrong thing at the wrong time. And you might say, boy, I just put my foot in my mouth and maybe just more than even that, maybe both feet and some more. Like it was just an awful moment and, you know, the relationship uh, it received some tension and some frustration and needs some mending and some care because of what I said. And those thoughtless words... There are degrees of seriousness, right? Some things we can just think, you know what, that was inconsiderate. I didn't mean it that way. Let me, let me, let me rewind that. I, that was offensive the way I put that, and I'm sorry. We, we can recognize how our speech can, can just even like paper cut someone's heart. But the degrees can be even far more serious where the kinds of accusations and slander can have the kinds of costs that wreck people's lives and reputations, Where the stakes truly are quite high, not just in an immediate friend or family circle, but even society and politically, spiritually. 
An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. See, these first two verses, I think we can understand them to mean there's an effect of the words on the speaker. Your words will bear a kind of fruit, and I wonder if you would want to eat the fruit of your words. And I think what verse 14 is inviting you to say to see is, The words and their effect, that's a kind of fruit. It's the consequence. All of our words have some kind of effect when we we speak them to others. We're either building up or tearing down, sharing truth or offering deceit. Some kind of spectrum of what we are speaking. The fruit of his mouth, the righteous, from the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good. In other words, the righteous person is not afraid to eat the effect of their words. If, if the shape of what they are committed to and what flows out of their heart to honor God and to love neighbor, if that were to become a kind of fruit, it is sweet to the taste. The, that man, the righteous man, is satisfied. The work of a man's hand comes back to him. Now, the hand language here is probably representing deeds done. In verse 14, words that are spoken. At the end of verse 14, deeds that are done. From the fruit of his mouth, the righteous is satisfied. In other words, if, if you were to imagine that your words will bounce back. You know, I saw this video a while back. Have you, have you seen uh, these places where you can go to throw axes at targets? Okay, so there is this video that comes across social media, and it did not go well. I've never seen this happen, but this one time, somebody was videoing. This person threw this axe. It bounced off the board, came right back to them, and they ducked in the right moment, and it sailed right over their head. And I thought to myself, I thought to myself, how often does that happen? Is that in like, do you have to sign something to be like, you know, if your axe comes back at you? And for the purposes of our, our, our thinking tonight, you know, that's, that's a pretty deadly weapon that you're wielding. And, uh, and if you're going to throw something, um, you would not anticipate something like that bouncing back. Solomon says, words, if you were to imagine what we are giving out, what we are sending forth, if they were to bounce back, would you feel the need to duck? Like if your words were coming back upon you, would that put you under threat in some way, putting your life at risk? From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good. The work of a man's hand comes back to him. I think verse 14 is envisioning the righteous person who has escaped from trouble. The fruit of his mouth, he wants the taste of that. What his hand and his deeds that he applies in life, the reaping of that, the consequences of that are welcomed. But this is also a warning. I think we could imply, I think we could imply that the fruit of the wicked is different. And the actions of the wicked are different. So if the daggers of the wicked, if the deceitful barbs of the wicked, if the axes of the wicked go forth, they should expect that they will be affected by their words and that the deeds they put toward others, if they were to come back upon them, they would surely not want that. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Thinking about how your actions and your speech being put forward would bring a kind of reaping or fruit, would you want that taste? Verses 13 and 14 are getting us to reckon, look, when you're speaking, you're not just affecting others, you're affecting you. In verses 15 to 16, this is recognizing different responses of the fool and the wise. Because not only are you not only are you giving words, sometimes people want to offer words. 
Sometimes you're not the only one doing the talking. Other people are talking and there's listening that's happening. And in verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So the, the wise man knows it's not only my words that are significant. In fact, we only see through a glass dimly. We, none of us see everything clearly. And, and this means we are helped in our own self-knowledge as well as navigating the world wisely by listening to other people who speak into our life and who address our hearts and souls before the Lord. You know what the fool thinks, though? The fool thinks my way is the right way. My thoughts and my opinions and my way of looking at it, I don't need to listen to anybody else. No one else needs to weigh in. The fool is right in his own eyes. And you know what this makes me think of is the book of Judges. The book of Judges has a refrain several times near the end of the book that there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Now, all of the actions differed. It all ended up being wicked, but it was according to their own instincts and their own desires. And there was no guiding righteousness or leader to consolidate the people. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. So the fool makes an evaluation. I'm looking at my life as a fool. Things seem to be as they ought to be, as I want them to be. They're going well. But the fool is deluded. The fool doesn't see his life clearly. The fool doesn't have the shining light of the word to reveal and expose. The fool isn't inviting the words of the wise. So the fool does not see his or her own life clearly at all. The fool makes an evaluation when not all the evidence has been considered. The fool has made a distorted evaluation. He deems his way right. Well, according to this context here, especially with the end of verse 15... Clearly, he's unwise. Others would give advice or counsel, but he doesn't want to listen. One writer puts it this way. Though the conceited fool thinks within himself that he's upright and without need of correction, his lack of uprightness becomes obvious to others. In other words, a wise man listens to advice. This means the fool, he may be surrounded by people who say, listen, can I, have, can I have a conversation with you for a moment about this? Can I ask some questions about this? Or have you considered this? The fool might not be void of, of help outside, but the fool is right in his own eyes. He doesn't listen. He or she doesn't listen. Um. You know, growing up, one of the phrases I would hear from my parents sometimes is, it's like you're talking to a brick wall. You know, have you ever heard things like that? It's like you're talking to a wall, you're trying to get through, and it's like, no, it's just bouncing back. You know, it's not soaking in. And whatever, whatever parallel idiom or phrase um, strikes you that you're familiar with, it makes the same point. The fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And, and friends, I think what this means is the Lord guides his people not because you are always right before the Lord in your evaluation. The Lord will use others in your life to help you. That the Lord's will will be done and his wisdom manifested in your life by giving wise counsel around. The wise listen to advice. And, and I think what the advice must mean in Proverbs here is not the advice of just anyone, but those who know and fear God. After all, think about how different it would be if we just said advice in general. Well, you know, all sorts of people might be willing to say, hey, I'll tell you what to do. Let me tell you what I think. Let me ask, you know, the, one of the larger issues at play is, is the advice coming from someone who knows and fears God? Because the advice might be, yeah, I think you should go ahead and do that. She should do this. He should do that. Do this against her or do this against him. All kinds of advice might guide you into foolishness. The wise man listens to wise counsel. 
Judges chapter 17 and 21 and other places confirm the abiding challenge that sinners will have. The temptation and challenge, uh, the temptation to only look at their own way and the challenge of needing to welcome humbly the advice of others. It is a posture of humility, I think. To listen to the advice of others is coming from a posture of saying, I'm not assuming I know it all. I'm not assuming I have it figured out. I'm not assuming I've thought it all through. So tell me what you think. And then being willing to listen. Being willing to reevaluate. Not just to see if they will confirm what you have already decided you're going to do. That's different. I mean, it's, it's a frustrating thing in pastoral ministry over the years. And I know other pastors feel this way too. When elders and pastors sit with folks who have already decided what they're going to do and they're asking about something and you think, you know, I don't think this would honor the Lord. They haven't considered this. Or what, but they've, they've already decided. They're, just, they're kind of looking for a spiritual rubber stamp. The fool is right in his own eyes. A wise man listens to advice. None of us see clearly on everything, and no one is right all of the time. Another commentator puts it this way. People demonstrate their maturity by how well they respond to sound advice. That's an interesting thought. People demonstrate their maturity by how well they respond to sound advice. Reasonable people, he says, reasonable people will recognize and accept good advice, even if they themselves often give advice to others. It might be rather a mark of immaturity then. In, in foolishness, to say, I don't need anyone's input. And in verse 16, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. The word vexation means to be upset about something, to be excited about something and not in a good way, to be incensed and frustrated, to be vexed to a point where you are boiling. The vexation of a fool is known. Known before others. There is a scene in which uh, this fool is not viewed privately here, but in relationships with others, and their foolishness is made known. But the prudent ignores an insult. Notice in verses 15 and 16, the wise man listens to advice, and the wise man or the prudent here ignores an insult. The wise man listens to advice and ignores an insult. The vexation of a fool is known at once, and I think the vexation here is probably in keeping with the end of what the prudent ignores. The vexation of the fool, he is stirred up and upset because he is offended or she is insulted by something. But the, and, and what that means is not that something truly, wasn't, uh, truly offensive wasn't said, may have been. The vexation or the upset nature of things means you are losing control of your senses. Losing control of yourself. It's a lack of self-control. Vexation is an expression of and demonstration of a loss of self-control because of something that has incensed you. The prudent is self-controlled. The prudent person ignores an insult. Um, you know, I just picture whether uh, somebody is having like a back and forth uh, conversation and debate about something. And it, it can easily devolve, especially in our culture's way of debating things, into character attacks and ad hominems and name calling. And, and all of a sudden you realize, you know, we're not even talking about an issue anymore. People are just attacking each other and trading insults and barbs back and forth. And the fool is incensed and upset by that. They do not control their irritation. The emotion becomes what is paramount. A lack of restraint. We might consider this to be an example of the fool's temper. 
And that socially and among friend circles, this can be something well known about the fool. Well, you know, if you said that to so-and-so, she would lose her mind or he would lose his mind because the reputation already is, look, man, you, the, the slight, you're just going to set him off. The vexation of the fool is known. The person might have the reputation among those who know him or her to lack self-control, but the prudent knows what to ignore. They don't want to let that get under their skin to where that becomes the focus. In fact, people who are casting insults might be looking to upset the other person. So if someone loses self-control and gets upset at the insult, they may be giving the other uh, barb thrower exactly what they wanted. Now, it might be, it might be um, claimed among believers, well, you know what, my, my lack of self-control or my frustration, I really can't control myself. I would invite you to consider, though, that we have more control than we think we do. Uh, for example, if you knew that um, there were, if, if someone you knew, I wouldn't say you uh, to imagine yourself in the example, but if you knew of someone in an episode to where they were going to have this, you know, knock down, drag out argument about something. And then realized, okay, we're going to have to have this in front of our church's ministers. Or we're going to have to have this in front of, you know, our, our particular uh, leaders in the culture that we admire. Or, um, or you pick your scenario, you know. If, uh, if, if they were going to do so, they would feel a, a shock up their leg if they, um, if they traded an insult. I bet they would start to demonstrate more restraint than they might have initially said they would have. I think it's a problem of incentive. I think it's a problem of incentive. And that we can let ourselves get away with talking certain ways to people. Whether it's in our home, to our spouses, to our children, uh, to our parents, to our friends. In close circles, we can develop the kind of comfort to where the guard and care over our tongue is just sort of removed altogether. And friends, it ought not be this way. To grow prudently and wisely means even in the closest of circles where people would know us best, we realize we have room to grow and improvement to make. We have more control than we think we do. We need this incentive because you will have thriving relationships and respect among your circles of peers if you will demonstrate self-control with your tongue. One writer puts it this way. The one who has knowledge anticipates the danger of a poor reaction. So if you, if you are insulted and frustrated about something, I mean, you can get really upset about that suddenly. I mean, you can, you can lose it and you can fire back and you can retaliate. But, but the wise might say, you know, in the moment that might feel right. That might feel like the thing to do, to revile in return uh, with revilement. Uh, or to return uh, revilement to revilement. But at the same time, a larger way of viewing things is, is that going to lead anywhere good? Where's this going to go? Where's this going to go? And in verses 17 through 19, he tells us the damage that words can cause. Part of the reason the wise wants to control their tongue. Part of the reason the fool lacks self-restraint. Um, these are, these are uh, all involving the wise thinking ahead and the fool only thinking of their short-term emotion. And in verses 17 and 19, look at some of the damage. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. This seems to set a context of legal um, courtroom uh, picture, right? Where you are, you are calling forth evidence. 
Someone's bringing testimony. What kind of damage can words cause here? Well, listen, if someone has the opportunity to speak what they know happened, what they witnessed, to give the honest evidence of the truth, that's going to be helpful to the case and cause of justice. But a false witness, their words inhibit and obstruct justice. A false witness is called such because they know what they utter is not true. They have some other agenda. They either want the guilty to go free or they want the innocent to be condemned. And so because of what outcome they want, that determines what they say. What they say isn't determined by what the truth is. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence. The speaker of the truth here is the wise. The false witness who utters deceit, this would be the fool. Think about in our, in our culture and in the ancient world, how much pursuits of justice rely on somebody giving testimony to what happened. It's so crucial in our day and age and throughout the periods of the ancient world to have someone who comes forward and saying, here is my testimony. Here is my word. I think in verses 17 and following, what we are to gather is our damage, the damage that our words can cause can be quite profound when we're not committed to the truth. We can actually be an obstacle to the pursuit of justice. In verse 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Two opposite effects here. Sword thrust is to picture that jab over and over again into the flesh. There is one whose rash words, hasty words, words without thought, reckless words, they are like sword thrusts over and over again, viewing their recipient of words like an opponent to defeat. And that ought not to be the default for how believers conduct themselves in their home, in their workplace, in their school places, in their neighborhoods. There is a prowling devil, and there are principalities and powers in this world. We do not wrestle ultimately against flesh and blood. And so if the way of operating in life is that our words are always looking for an enemy to defeat, then I would worry about our heart's posture, where we might, in more cases than not, be using words like sword thrusts against those we're called to love and care for. Because look at the opposite effect. The tongue of the wise brings healing. So the, the difference is my words can wound people or my words can heal. Now we need to know what this means and does it mean. I don't think there's anything magical that's being spoken of here. I think it's to say my words can build people up, reconcile relationships, and aim at restoration. Or my words can make things worse. My words can be like sword thrusts. My words can wound. And we need to ask ourselves, what kind of relationships do we want to have? What kind of relationships do I want manifested in my words? Am I interested in wounding the people near me? If, if, why would we want to do that? Our sinful instincts can be quite powerful. But in the big picture, that's not going to produce any kind of relationship we want. Instead, the tongue of the wise views things differently. There's a lot of woundedness in the world. Every person we meet has been deeply wounded by things over life. And I'm not saying just because of their own sins and temptations of life. I'm talking about just in relationships with mental and emotional stresses. Every person we meet has gone through things. And our words can speak truth and life and healing. You know, and I'm not trying to be silly with it. 
um, like in some kind of health, wealth, gospel, name it, claim it sense. But I just mean the power of our tongue is profound, isn't it? One writer thinks about bringing healing here, this language about bringing healing, as what the Messiah would ultimately do with his words. The tongue of the wise brings healing. If you are willing, Jesus, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I am willing, be clean. You think about the words of Jesus, who is the wise of all wise, okay? He is the pinnacle and, and embodiment of all wisdom and what his words did in a fallen world, bringing restoration and life. Now, we're not Jesus. We can't command that the sick be healed with the power that Jesus himself would command the sick to be healed. But our human language, our words can, let me put it this way, counter the effects of a broken and fallen world. And I think Jesus is honored and the Spirit uses us to bring about relationships where our words have brought restoration and reconciliation and truth and warmth and kindness and especially the good news of the gospel in evangelism. All of these things are pushing back against the darkness. And I think as believers, hey, listen, we're light to the world. And not just in the good news that we share, but in all the other words we use as well. We can really compromise our credibility to share the gospel when all of our words have been sword thrust up to that point. In other words, we should consider how we can bring light and restoration, encouragement and life-giving help and aid and support and words that are like pushing back against the darkness. Words of healing against the curse. And I don't think I'm trying to oversell this verse. I'm trying to get us to recognize we are agents and ambassadors of the Lord Jesus who is bringing peace through the word of the gospel and his people who bear this treasure in their hearts. And our rash words, those bring more wounds than healing. The tongue of the wise that is more thoughtful and deliberate. How can I make this better in this relationship? How can I improve what is around me with my words? What kinds of conversations do I need to have? What sort of truth do I need to bring to the falsehood or to the deceit? What sort of love and, and, uh, and gentleness needs to be applied? In, verses, in verse 19, there is, a, there is a long-term benefit to thinking this way. Truthful lips endure forever. Now, I think he's choosing the part of the body here to represent the person. This is a literary device. The word for it is called synecdoche. And what this means is they choose a part of the body to represent the person. And here, truthful lips mean the wise person. Because that's the person whose lips speak what is true and righteous. But the lying tongue, well, that, the lying tongue belongs to the wicked. So that represents the wicked. With that, with that literary device, let's reword verse 19. The righteous, they're the ones who love the truth. The righteous endure forever, but the wicked just for a moment. It's talking about here eternal life and dwelling with God. That's the future for the righteous. So one of the reasons we want our words to be thoughtful and not rash, one of the reasons we want to push back against the darkness with the light of truth and gentleness and kindness and, uh, and love is because in verse 19, the future belongs to the truth. These things matter to us because the righteous will endure and stand before the Lord. But the wicked, the lying tongue, there is a vanity to wickedness, to the words of unrighteousness. The future belongs to the truth, and therefore our commitment to the truth ought to be accordingly. 
In verses 20 through 21, let's explore the inner and outer lives of the righteous and wicked. Inwardly and outwardly. What's going on? Well, deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. So once again, we're dealing with the contrast of the wicked and the wise. The wicked, the righteous and the unrighteous. The deceit that's in the heart of those who devise evil means they are not sharing or speaking or planning from a good place. They've got an agenda. Truth is being twisted for a reason. They're manipulating words in order to manipulate people for a greater end. This is the dangerous part about deceit. Deceit is not loving neighbor. It's using neighbor for some reason. It's obscuring and twisting truth towards some other end. That's what's so dangerous about dishonesty versus honesty. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. And this is probably in view of like chapter 1 of Proverbs, setting some trap or devising evil at the expense of another. Devise evil with some kind of plan or trap. But those who plan peace have joy. And I want you to notice here the inner and outer lives of the righteous and the wicked here. The deceit in the heart of the wicked is contrasted with the joy in the heart of the righteous. I don't think this is some kind of worldly fleeting joy. These are the people who know God. These are the people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They believe that truth is worth committing to. They believe that lives in step with the truth are what honor God. And they have a clean conscience. They're not using other people. They want to love people. They don't do it perfectly. Who of us does? But their commitment is to love God and love neighbor. And their heart is different from the wicked. Those who plan peace. That's different from plans of evil. Devising evil and planning peace. Think about the effects of that on other people. Here is evil devised from a wicked heart in order to in some way ensnare or manipulate neighbor. But then there's the heart of the one who knows God. Their heart of joy produces a plan of peace that will lead to something else. The words of the wise bring healing. The plans of the wise bring peace. That's what the wise want. Verse 21 might sound shocking. I should also say, by the way, in verse 20, a a perfect example of this is the serpent himself in Genesis 3. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. One of the insidious things about um, having a deceitful heart and not loving neighbor with one's words and plans is that you're very serpent-like in the process. Because the evil one himself twisted words and manipulated truth and had another agenda and therefore denied what he needed to and twisted what he needed to in order for his deceptive plot to spring. In verse 21, no ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Now, if you look at this and you say, well, you know what? Ill has befallen me. I must not be righteous. That's not what that means. Um, We recognize in verse 21 that there's a larger context This is not denying that the righteous face difficulties and trials in life. There's a a particular way of thinking about this here. It can be translated calamity or misfortune or harm. This is about harm one brings on themselves by their decisions. When this talks about ill befalling the righteous, this means um, the righteous are not sowing Uh, wisdom and peace and then reaping on themselves what's bouncing back like that you know axe bouncing off the target back at them um, trouble but it is the case for the wicked now the righteous can face all sorts of difficulties they don't bring on themselves 
And if we are going to face trials and difficulties in life, may it be from things other than decisions that we have made. Okay, uh, this is similar to like First Peter chapter four, where he recognizes believers are going to suffer. And he says, look, if you're going to suffer, make sure you're suffering for doing good, for doing the will of God and not facing punishment and difficulty because of your own unrighteousness and wickedness. You contrast this with the life of the wicked. The wicked are filled with trouble. The wicked are filled with trouble. Uh, One writer puts it this way. Living a decent and upright life before the Lord means we will not have frequent trouble of our own making. But it is not, this writer says, this is not a proverb about whether life will not have its difficulties. Instead, it's it's whether some calamitous event is resulting from your evil intents and plans. The wicked are filled with trouble because what they devise for others and the effects of their words and plans on themselves bring this sorrow. Isn't this a grievous thing to see in the lives of fellow believers? We might look at their lives and various decisions that they have made and we realize they are making decisions that are bringing such trouble on themselves. That can be such a frustrating thing to see. You can feel so helpless. It's like you don't have to go through this or in this way or for this long. But because of your commitment to a certain way of thinking about it and acting and responding to it, you're continuing to bring such trouble on yourself. The righteous want to think wisely about their lives, their choices, and therefore the kinds of calamity that would befall the wicked aren't coming because the righteous have hearts and plans of evil. In verses 22 and 23, we finish our passage tonight looking at the evaluation of the Lord and the role of discretion. The evaluation of the Lord in verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. And I think this is just putting before us spiritually, do you want to be the Lord's delight or for him to see you as an abomination? And, and that, that large way of, of looking over one's life is, is brought with the specific examples down to the lips and the use of speech. Lying lips are an abomination. What about those who act faithfully? Well, if lying lips earlier in the verse are followed by those who act faithfully, I think that must mean faithfulness according to one's speech and life in step with the truth. In other words, there's a commitment to the truth. That's what acting faithfully looks like. That's not true for the wicked. Their lips are lying and the righteous are the delight of the Lord. It's good for us to remind ourselves that the Lord is not neutral toward his people, but has steadfast love and delight. We are those who are in Christ and the Lord loves us and delights in his people. The wicked, their lives are an abomination to God. Their lips lie and hearts deceive. The word abomination means to to be repulsive to. And so to be an abomination to the Lord is to say the Lord is repulsed by the wicked. The lying lips are another way of of using this literary device of talking about the fool. Taking that little part of the body and referencing that as uh, referencing the wicked with it. Lying lips, that's a way of talking about the wicked. Those who act faithfully, that's the righteous. That's the wise. They are God's delight. Well, the consequences couldn't be more contrasting. Abomination or the Lord's delight. Verse 23, the wisdom of discretion. Our last verse tonight, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Now, remember earlier when I said the righteous not only know what to say, but also when to say it and how to say it and to whom to say it. 
The prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. The prudent man is committed to the truth, but also acts with discernment and discretion. In fact, you have probably had conversations, and maybe from friends or family members or even from young children, who might come up and they ask a question and you realize, it's not my place to share that particular thing. Or to answer with all the information that they might be looking for. So I'm going to use discretion. And I'm going to use discernment. Not because I'm adopting the deceitful heart of the fool, but because the wise knows that not everything needs to be known by everyone when those would, would uh, inquire. A prudent man knows when to conceal knowledge. But the heart of fools? I mean, it can devolve into slander and gossip and all manner of just gushing from the mouth. There's no sense of carefulness and thoughtfulness and discernment. Instead, the prudent man or the shrewd person, the prudent man or prudent woman, knows how to use discernment and discretion. The fool is without wisdom. And because folly is proclaimed, because self-control is lost, because a heart of deceit or manipulation might be behind so much of what is said, the fool is constantly getting in their own way and bringing harm and damage to relationships. Well, friends, when we look at it this way and all the different contrasts between the wise and the fool and the righteous and the wicked, and you see all these different contrasts, the, the believer, just like the young reader of, of Solomon's Proverbs here, the believer is to look at this and say, I long to be among the wise with my speech. Well, the Bible cares so much about our speech. You can't get far into Proverbs before you're, you're not only confronted with Proverbs of speech, you leave that to other subjects, you'll eventually get around to speech again. It's all over the place. The book of Proverbs knows how fickle our commitments to the truth might be, how vulnerable we are to temptation, how impatient or short-tempered we can be when incensed. The prudent man, the wise, the righteous, their speech is characterized by a certain way. Let me close this way. When you use your words for reconciliation and encouragement and peacemaking, your words are life-giving. You're entering a wounded world and your words are bringing healing. Not because you're Jesus, but because you're in Christ and the power of the Spirit is at work in a broken world through His people. Especially when we share the gospel. Perhaps above all and beyond any other aid that we can supply when we direct people to the living water and living bread who is Christ. The blessings that you give and the truth that you give and the encouragements that you offer in your relationships. Friends, that is life-giving. That's a way to use our words. And I would suggest to you that needs to be our default. Not criticism and not overstating things and not slander. The world is full of those things. The world is full of deceit and despair and evil devices. And so now the Lord summons his people to wisdom and say, now you have tongues among all the other tongues as well. How will you conduct yourself? And may it be wise. Let's pray.